Welcome to Basic Brewing Radio for Thursday, January 5th, 2006. I'm James Spencer. Here at Basic Brewing Radio, we're all about home brewing, making beer at home. With this week, Ray Daniels, author of Designing Great Beers, joins us to talk about hop bitterness and the factors in brewing that affect it. We'll even get a, a little bit into talking about how to calculate IBUs. Well, this is the first podcast of 2006. Hope everybody's had a great year so far, a great new year. Around our house so far this year, it's the, the year of the stomach virus. Now, I, know, I know sharing is supposed to be good among family members, but, you know, there, there's a limit. But, uh, you know, enough of me running at the mouth, which which is kind of opposite of what I was doing earlier this week. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry about that. I just, I felt a little goofy. Feel a little goofy this afternoon. I'm just uh, I'm not drunk, mind you. You know, I just felt goofy. I think I'm still dehydrated from that stomach stomach thing. Well, I'm I'm going to read a couple of uh, letters from the mailbag uh, to start off the show before we get into talking with Ray Daniels. Both of these letters concern methods of brewing that may be considered a bit unorthodox. Uh, both of these brewers found themselves in situations where they just had to wing it and be creative in their brewing process. And uh, we have evidence that, that one of them turned out well, and we're still waiting on the other. Now, the, the first letter is from someone you may remember from an earlier show. Brian from St. Paul, Minnesota, wrote in a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was last week's show, saying he had recently received two five-gallon beverage coolers for free and wanted to know what I thought of using them as mash and louder tons and splitting all grain batches between the two because he was worried that uh, all the grain and water from an all grain batch would not fit into just one five gallon cooler. Well, I said it sounded like a lot of work, but he could probably do it. I suggested first trying a moderate gravity beer using only one of the coolers or using his new 40 quart stock pot as a mash vessel and using direct heat to reach his mash rest temperatures and to see how that went before he moved up to bigger batches. Well, it seems Brian has a deadline that he wants to hit, and here's what he says in a follow-up email since I read his first note. Brian says, My wife will be giving birth at the end of February, and she really misses having a couple of beers after work. So I had to brew her favorite style, American IPA, which normally has a bit higher gravity. So that's that's Brian's... That's Brian's deadline there. He continues, I mashed in the 40-quart pot. I brought 3.5 gallons of water to 170 degrees, removed the pot from the burner, and added my 13.5 pounds of grain. So his strike temperature was 170, and he, uh, he took, took the pot off the burner and added his grain. He says, I stirred up the grain to soak them all and watched the temperature. When the temperature got close to 150 degrees, I would stir the grains and add back to the heat till around 155 degrees. So that's his sacrification rest there, where he's converting starches to sugars. As a side note, this way requires a lot of attention, constantly watching the temperature. Brian says, I see, I can see in the future that I will have to change my method, but for my first run, having my face in that cereal for about an hour was wonderful. And if you haven't done an all-grain batch, it smells great, that stuff. Anyway, Brian says... Since I didn't have a spigot in my pot, which I will have to change, my buddy and I used a strainer to slowly dump the cereal and extract the sweet wort. 
We then dumped the saturated grains into an ale pail with a spigot on the bottom and added four gallons or so of 160-degree water for a batch sparge. The crushed grains acted as a filter, allowing the water to drain through them. He says it was amazing. Uh, Brian continues, We drained back into the 40-gallon stockpot, brought the wort to a boil, added hops, cooled, racked, aerated, pitched uh, the yeast starter, and drank a, a couple of homebrewed mild ales. He says, start to finish, it took about six hours, my longest brew day. And Brian uh, concludes, thanks for your input. I thought I had to do a mini-mash for this maternal IPA, but with your help I was able to make my first all-grain beer, and I'll let you know how it tastes in about a month and a half. Well, I bet it tastes great. And congratulations, Brian, on the baby being on the way, uh, first of all, the biggie, and also because of your, your first all-grain batch. I, I wish you the, the best of luck with both of them, especially the baby, but, you know, also the beer. Um, and, you know, with the, the new baby, your brewing time may have to take a back seat, so you may want to sneak in a few more batches before the big event and, and stock up for both you and uh, the new mom because you might, you might need the beer just a little, you know, during, during your little rest times there. So, uh, Brian decided to, to improvise a louder ton there with a strainer and a bottling bucket. It's not the best setup. And, uh, you know, I don't know what his efficiency numbers are, but I'll bet the beer will be good and the new mom will be happy. And, uh, you know, in starting this way, Brian and his buddy now know the process and can have a better idea of what equipment they need to streamline their process in the future. You know, in my opinion, sometimes it's good just to jump right in there. And if you make some mistakes, figure out what you did wrong and, and do it again and do it better next time. In my opinion, it's much better than sitting on the sidelines, not getting any experience at all, which was my attitude toward all-grain brewing for many years. And I wish I would jumped in uh, a long time ago. Now, one thing that Brian didn't mention is when you're loudering, you want to do a Vorloff before you start running your wort into, into your brew pot. In other words... The first runnings off the grain will be cloudy, and there might be some husks in there. We just run those into a bowl or some other container and return them gently to the louder ton in order to uh, not to disturb the grain bed and repeat this process until your grain bed starts filtering and your wort is running clear, and then let it go into the brew pot. That way you make sure you don't get the husks and you get a, a clarified wort going into your brew pot. But again, congratulations, Brian, and best of luck with the new baby. Now, Matt from Bedford in the United Kingdom writes in with another brewing story that may raise some eyebrows and may raise some hackles out there. So if you're a brewing purist, you may want to fast forward a couple of minutes in the show. Matt writes, in one of your recent podcasts, you mentioned making a bread using beer yeasts. But how about the other way around? I just made a mock lager using bread yeast. I was using up some old ingredients and made a beer using some British lager malt, some flaked rice, and holler tower hops. I had no beer yeast available, so I made a starter using some dry malt extract and some baker's dried yeast that I had in the cupboard for bread making. I fermented for about a week, racked to the secondary for about two weeks, and uh, Matt says he kept the secondary fermenter outside, so the temperature was around 3 to 7 degrees Celsius, or centigrade, 
and uh, I figure that's about 37 to 45 degrees Fahrenheit. I then primed and bottled as normal. The resulting beer came out pretty good, like a basic lager that you get in pubs in the U.K. And uh, Matt says, I'm now tweaking my recipe to work in a little more malt sweetness, and I will also adjust my hop additions a little. He says, I'm calling it baking soda. (laughs) So um, I can hear the hackles rising out there. I wrote to Matt saying that there will be some brewers listening out there who will turn up their noses at his experiment, and Matt says, I bet there will. And he continues, I'm pretty new to brewing, but I'm very keen to try out new things. I'm, I'm quite tempted to split my next batch between five one-gallon fermenters and use a different yeast in each. And he says, yes, including the trusty bread yeast, just to see how radical the differences can be. Well, I would love to hear how that comes out. In fact, I think it would be awesome if we were to arrange an intercontinental podcast on that topic. So I hope that Matt keeps in touch and uh, goes through with his uh, yeast split batch experiment thing. So so there are a couple stories from brewers who are improvising and going against the grain a bit. And, uh, you know, I'm not endorsing Brian's laudering and sparging method or Matt's use of bread yeast as ingredient. But, you know, at least Matt's method has yielded some good results, according to him. And I, and I hope that uh, Brian's uh, improvised uh, all-grain IPA comes out well. Uh, and I believe it will. Now, one final self-promoting note. Uh, Matt says he's interested in the all-grain DVD that I keep talking about and asks if it will be possible to get a hold of it in the U.K. And uh, I have a couple of pieces of good news. First, Knockwood, I should be able to tell everybody next week how you can get a pre-release copy of the all-grain DVD that Steve and I have put together. That's next week. Also, uh, unlike the extract DVD, I've not limited the encoding on the all-grain DVD to Region 1. In other words, people outside North America should be able to view it. There is one catch. It will be in the NTSC format. Um, However, I believe it will work on computers that have DVD drives no matter where you are. I did some voiceover work for a German documentary that was produced in the PAL format, and it doesn't work on my DVD player, which is NTSC, but it does work on my computers, that have DVD capability. And um, so I'm planning to set up a, a page to arrange for shipping uh, the DVD outside the United States, uh, just like we've uh, got the extract DVD now. So hopefully uh, we'll be a little more international in our efforts uh, with the all-grain DVD. So I look forward to the next week. It should be a blast. Now, uh, enough self-promotion uh, on to a, uh, the interview that uh, I look forward to sharing with all of you. Ray Daniels is the author of Designing Great Beers, and he joins us this week to talk about hop bitterness and the factors in brewing that affect it. I mentioned your book, Designing Great Beers, on just about every show, and I know that uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, it it has made a difference in in my understanding of how uh, uh, recipes are formulated, and and uh, you know I've made recipes in the past, and they've turned out pretty well, but it may have been more of an accident than uh, <laughs> than plan, anything right. else. Uh, but your book it does real well, uh, is really good at uh, breaking down the components of the beer. 
and uh, you know how, what goes into making each of those what they are, and then uh, the second half of the book talks about beer styles and and what makes uh, those uh, individual beer styles uh, uh, what they are, and so it's just a really good resource uh, for me, and I appreciate your appreciate your writing it. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate you mentioning it. Well, and and you spent three chapters on hops. Uh, so hops are pretty important uh, to the beer, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. No question about that. And specifically, I want to talk about uh, bittering in using hops. I, f- I figure it's it's best to to uh, break this subject uh, down into chunks, and probably the most uh, popular chunk on on hops is bittering. Uh, what makes what is in hops that makes them bitter? Well, uh, alpha acids and. Um uh, you know, there are organic uh, acids, organic compounds uh, that actually in their native form in the hop are not uh, very bitter, uh, very low in bitterness actually. Um, and um, in, during the brewing process, when we boil hops or, or compounds derived from hops that have um, alpha acids in them, we convert those alpha acids to a different form uh, an isomer of the original um, alpha acid, uh, which is uh, bitter and has the the bittering intensity uh, that is needed for for this uh, compound to contribute the, the bitter character to beer. Now, is is bitterness the same across hop varieties? Say, if you use hop varieties A, B, and C for for bittering, if you get the same IBUs from each, do you get the same bitterness? Um, well, no, uh, and I think that um, bitterness has uh, a couple of constituents. Um, first of all, there are three uh, different alpha acids, um, humulone, cohumulone, and adhumulone, well, three major ones. Uh, I understand there are some, some additional ones that have been recently elucidated, but uh, for the most part in, in brewing chemistry, we talk about the three uh, main and well-known uh, alpha acids. The balance, uh, and each of them has a slightly different um, uh, bittering uh, character, uh, although I don't know that I could, without reference to notes, talk too much about the differences between them. Um, but, but they do have uh, slightly different characteristics, and so the balance of, uh, uh, well, so different characteristics. And then the second point is that uh, they, these three uh, components of alpha acid appear in different ratios and different amounts. Uh, in different hop varieties. So one may be particularly rich in, in uh, adhumulone, another in cohumulone, uh, a third in humulone itself. Um, and so that balance of, of alpha acids uh, can have an impact on the bittering characteristics. Um, that's sort of the first consideration. Uh, the second is, uh, and probably less significant, is uh, beta acids, which are uh, a related compound which have um, a minimal bittering impact for the most part, uh, but which can uh, affect the uh, bitter characteristic, the bitter, bitter character of the hops that you use. And then finally, we have the role of uh, the essential oils, which are the other reason that we use hops in brewing. And even though most bittering hops, most applications of hops in a bittering uh, setting uh, will drive off the majority of those oils, um, they uh, influence the way in which hops are perceived, uh, the hop character is perceived, 
uh, nonetheless. And so that's another uh, factor to consider, even in the selection of, of bittering hops. So an IBU is not an IBU is not an IBU? Uh, strictly speaking, no. Uh, but, of course, you know, it's, it's a useful enough measure to, to give us a sense of, of balance, uh, and that's really what we're, we're after in, in looking at IBUs. Now, speaking of IBUs, what is an IBU, and how is it different from an AAU or an HBU? Well, um, usually I use a chalkboard when I talk about these things, but uh, <laughs> I'll, try to, I'll try to walk through it clearly. Imagine so a that, chalkboard. Uh, so that it doesn't get too confusing. Um, IBUs um, are international bitterness units. Uh, that's uh, what those letters stand for. Um, sometimes you will see EBUs for European bitterness units. They are the same thing. And uh, quantitatively, uh, they're defined as being um, parts per million of isomerized alpha acids in beer. And um, that's, that's the essential measure of, of IBUs. Um, parts per million uh, turns out fairly conveniently uh, to be equal in real measurements to number of milligrams per liter of beer. So uh, milligrams of iso-alpha acid, isomerized alpha acids, uh, per liter of beer is, is ultimately what we're trying to get to. And all of the calculations that are done to estimate IBUs tie back into that uh, milligrams per liter in some way or another. Um, so that's, that's the measurement of it. Um, HBUs and AAUs are, are other you know, systems, sort of uh, shorthand systems for uh, quantifying um, hop uh, bitterness additions, hop bittering additions, without getting into this more complicated uh, uh, model uh, that's involved in, in estimating uh, IBUs. Um, let's see, right this minute, I'm not even sure I could go into a, a clear explanation of those two without um, taking a minute to, to think about it myself. I, th- I think it's pretty much you, you multiply the the alpha acid percentage times the amount that you're using, right? Right, exactly, and that, and that, and that gives you the, the alpha acid units, um, and which tell, tells you essentially the amount of alpha acid that, that you're adding to that at that particular time. And what has to be specified separately is the um, uh, the timing, how long the, that alpha acid is to be boiled. Because it takes a while to, to bring those alpha acids out and then to isomerize them, right? Well, yeah, right. That's, that's, and that gets into the whole calculation issue um, uh, of, of how do we estimate IBUs based upon what's going into uh, the recipe. So and there is there is an advantage in at least in the way you calculate IBUs in the book, as opposed to sort of the rough calculation of AAUs or HBUs, as as I've heard them uh, described. The the way you calculate the IBUs is, I mean, there are a number of factors that we can talk about, but they're they they are all um, they all have an, a different effect on the amount of bitterness that you're going to bring them out in the process. So. You know, using AAUs or HBUs is really kind of a ballpark way of doing things, whereas IBUs can get you more uh, narrowly focused on what you're actually going to perceive, right? Yeah, and, and I and I like the way that that, that you phrase that uh, because you know I think it's important to remember 
when we're working with IBU calculations uh, is they are indeed an estimate. There are a vast number of factors that go into um, the the real utilization, the real you know milligrams per liter of, of isoalpha acids that you wind up with in your finished beer, and so any any calculation is is at best an estimate. How accurate can we get in figuring IBUs in home brewing? I mean, you know how if you go through the formulas, if you go through all the factors, how confident can you be that those numbers that you figure in the beginning are what you get in the end? Well, I mean, the short answer is confident enough. <laughs> um, you know, there there are fourteen hundred small breweries, small commercial breweries in the United States today, and uh, maybe fifty of them do uh, IBU, um, you know, actual IBU testing to mm. find out what their their real bitterness level is in their beers. Everybody else is, uh, you know, doing it uh, with with formulas and and seat of the pants, and and it works well enough to uh, make some awfully fine beers out there. Um, you know, one of the mo- most important things, that, points that I always make when, when talking about IBU, IBU calculations um, with brewers is to remember that um, our, the, the, palate, the human palate's ability to distinguish between different IBU levels uh, is pretty coarse. Um, on the order of five IBUs is the sort of minimum difference um, that, that, that you can detect. And that data—that's data that that um, data. It's a, a fact that I learned uh, when I was at, at Siebel doing doing brewing school in the, in the mid '90s, and uh, that was based upon tasting in you know American light lager. So you can imagine if you know here's a beer that has very few flavor attributes to begin with, and if in that beer. Uh, you got to have at least a five IBU uh, difference in order to be able to distinguish that that there's a difference in bitterness. Think about how big the change must need to be in uh, a big brawny, you know, IPA hmm. uh, in order for the average taster to actually be able to say, hey, you know, this tastes more like you know, 50 IBUs rather than 60 IBUs or 70 IBUs. <laughs> um, you know, I, it, it, so that's why I say the, the real answer is it's close enough. It, it, it gets you in the ballpark, and um, as long as you don't, um, you know, expect too much out of it, uh, then I think you're going to be very happy with the results. A lot of people, I think, are confused. They look at the IBU number on a beer, you know, say like an Imperial IPA or something right. like that, and they say, oh, my gosh, it's got 90 IBUs. This is going to be really, really bitter. Well, that that's not necessarily the case, right? Right, right. I mean, it's all about balance and, um, you know, the amount of malt you've got uh, to uh, to counterbalance the hops. Uh, tells you a lot more about uh, what the what the beer is going to taste like, or what your what your perception of the bitterness is going to be. And I mean, you know that that's that's what it's all about from from, from the very beginning. I mean, uh, you know, an American light lager, uh, you put more than about ten IBUs in there, and and uh, it's going to blow you away. Um, you know, a, a, a big malty um, brown ale or something, you can get away with putting forty or fifty in there before it starts to to take on the same sorts of properties. And in, in your book, you describe beers, one of the ways you describe beers is 
uh, a ratio of bittering units versus gravity units. Right, the U to G U ratios. And that's that's very useful, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I, I mean, thank you. And, uh, you know, I certainly continue to find it to be useful. Uh, it's always nice when uh, something you, you make up <laughs> in the process of, of writing a book uh uh, ten years later, you can look at it and say, you know, I, I still like that, and I still use it. And, and when I uh, teach uh, beer recipe formulation classes at the Siebel Institute now, uh, in the three-day course we do there, uh, I always reference the BU to GU, and I always explain that as a fundamental uh, measure of beer balance uh, up front. And then as we go through the individual styles, um, you know, it's a defining characteristic. It's not just about you know what's the original gravity and what what are the IBUs? It's it's think about you know what the balance range is on this beer and if you've got something that's up in the the point eight to point nine range, uh, that's going to be quite a different tasting beer from something that's down in the point six to point seven range. Um, and it's it's a it's a useful way to to think about that stuff. Now, what what are the factors in in determining bitterness in beer and how much? How much uh, bitterness that you can you can get out of uh, you know a certain hop? Well, I mean, I think the the main you know the main stuff that we're working with when we do the estimate is um, what's the alpha acid concentration in the hop, and that's something everybody who's ever bought a bag of hops uh, knows because it says right on the front you know seven percent alpha acids by weight or three percent or twelve percent whatever it it happens to be. Um, and then, um, you know, we're going to look at that and, and how much raw alpha acid we're adding to the to the beer, uh, what our volume of beer is going to be. And uh, the other big one is, as you mentioned, is boil time. And uh, that one gets even even more complicated because it is it is a curve. Uh, your utilization is a curve. And the exact... Uh, line of that curve is, is dependent upon some other factors as well, like whether you're using pellet or whole hops. Um, yeah, that's probably the main one, but uh, you know, uh, the boil vigor, your altitude, you know, things like that can can shift that curve around as well. Uh, so those are all factors that that go into uh, thinking about uh, the hop calculation. Well, let, let's take these one at a time. Uh, what about the difference between whole hops and, and pellets? Well. Um, uh, the pelletizing process is is uh, a pretty pretty rough process. Uh, they they grind uh, grind the hops up and uh, cram them through a little uh, pencil uh, <laughs> kind of pencil diameter uh, tube uh, to uh, create sort of little rabbit pellet uh, you know type things. And uh, that process um, liberates the the essential oils and and the um, alpha acids. Uh, from their home deep uh, inside the, the hop, right down around the, the stem of, of the hop, and uh, makes them much more accessible uh, in the wort. Uh, as soon as those uh, pellets go into the, to the boiling wort, they uh, tend to uh, dissolve and, and disperse, and uh, you've got almost instant um, dissolution of, um, of those components into the, uh, into the wort itself. When you throw whole hops in, uh, you know, it takes a little time for the for the for the wort to seep down into the middle of the of the hop, uh, because the the essential oils and the alpha acids are surrounded by uh, the leaves of the hop cone. Uh, there's less physical agitation going on. There's less movement of of wort around those chemical constituents, and so it just takes longer for them to uh, dissolve in the wort to begin with. 
And just to, on your personal preference, do you prefer whole hops or pellets or one for one purpose and another for another? Or? Um, you know, I'm, I'm relatively indifferent. Um, and I would say that in, in commercial breweries, what I find generally is that their system is designed uh, for either using whole hops or pellets. And because of the way the brew house is designed, they essentially are are compelled to use one or the other, and, and never the twain shall meet. Um, but their their ability to handle the hops in the kettle, uh, their ability to separate the hops from uh, the wort, uh, either with the tube or in a separate process uh, post uh, boil, uh, those things really drive uh, selection of of hops. Um, qualitatively, uh, I have you know never been confronted with any any clear evidence that 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 there were uh, big differences between the two but what about yourself brewing at home what's your preference um you know what i i really go with um uh, if i'm looking for a specific hop um i mean i probably have a slight preference for for pellets just because it reduces the amount of uh wort loss uh after after boiling uh i boil uh in a kettle and use an immersion chiller um, I should say, well, we all boil in a kettle. I boil in a, in a, in a non-plumbed kettle, <laughs> a kettle with, with no, no spigots or, or outlets on it, and, um, you know, on a, on a, a Cajun cooker. And uh, when, when the boil is done, I throw an immersion wort chiller in there and uh, chill that stuff down. And then I use a, a you know, a siphon tube to rack, rack the wort right out of there. It's, it's uh, sort of old-timey technology to uh, a lot of people who've got... Uh, uh, these great uh, plumbed systems these days, uh, but it works well. The one downside to it is that uh, your tube and your hop mass settle to the bottom during chilling, and so the more hop mass that you've got, the more wort you're going to lose um, obscured by that hop mass uh, at the end of the boil. Uh, so I would generally uh, prefer pellets, uh, but uh, if I'm uh, and looking for a particular hop, and it's only available in whole hops. Uh, that certainly doesn't stop me from uh, from going that route. So, but looking uh, at at whole hops versus pellets, in just a utilization perspective, ounce for ounce, you're going to get better utilization out of pellets. Um, yeah, I mean it. It's it, yeah, right. We usually uh, look at a factor of about uh, twenty to twenty five percent on the utilization between whole versus versus pellets. Wow. Now, what what is the biggest percentage of hop utilization that you can hope for? You're not going to get a hundred percent of those alpha acids that are in there. No, um, most um, most research shows that around thirty three to thirty five uh, percent, and that's at about a ninety minute uh, boil. Uh, you can get some small additional increments of utilization by boiling longer. Um, but it is the curve is is pretty flat at that point, and you're going to have to have to boil an awful lot in order to get it. Um, you know, at a home brewer level, you know, you might do it, but from a commercial perspective, the energy uh, required to uh, to boil for even a few additional minutes doesn't doesn't make it worthwhile. You'd rather just add a few more hops, a few more ounces of hops, whatever it is, because you're going to uh, get a more uh, cost-effective use of the ingredient. What is the the gravity of the boil? What impact does that have on extracting bitterness? Um, yeah, gravity is an important factor to keep an eye on um, because the the first uh, thing we consider uh, in order for the hot, the alpha acids to become isomerized during the boil, uh, they must first be dissolved in uh, the wort, 
and um, uh, for the heat and the mechanical action of boiling to really act on them and, and cause um, isomerization. Um, the solubility of, of alpha acids, native alpha acids, acids, is fairly limited in work to begin with. And um, uh, as the work gravity increases, solubility of alpha acids actually decreases. And uh, so there is a correction factor for uh, worts that are greater than 1050 uh, OG to start with, or, or actually greater than 1050 during the boil. If you're, if you're making a five-gallon batch but only um, boiling three uh, gallons of wort, uh, then more than likely you're, you're going to be in excess of that 1050 figure during the boil, and you're going to need to use that correction factor. Yeah, we did an experiment uh, here on the show where uh, we took two small batches of extract uh, mm-hmm. beers, uh, started out with three quarts in each and used, uh, I think, a quarter ounce of Cascade hop pellets and uh, two cups of light dry malt extract in each. And we started uh, the boil and put the hops and the extract in at the beginning of one and just boiled the hops in plain water in the other and added the extract the last 15 minutes of the boil. And there was a significant difference in the uh, hop characteristics of both of those batches. Mm, yeah, yeah, I would, I would think so. Um, what, what was? Uh, do you remember the result? Uh, one, the one where it was the the extract, the full boil, right, uh, was very malty and lots of hop flavor, uh-huh. uh, lots of citrusy flavor from from the hops, right. and not a, not a whole lot of bitterness. Uh, the other one uh, was. Quite a bit more more hop bitterness, not nearly as much hop flavor. Uh, and I had talked to a couple of people who were worried that we were going to get grassy off flavors from just boiling the hops alone in water. Yeah. Uh, but we did not. Uh, we didn't get that. Yeah, that that doesn't surprise me. But uh, yeah, that, that's uh, that's that's quite interesting. The uh, the one where you boil it, used it with with the malt the, the whole way. You essentially, sort of got a first word hopping. Uh, kind of effect in terms of preserving the uh, the flavors of of the hops, and um, yeah, the other one you're just getting straight isomerization because solubility of of alpha acids in in water should should be uh, uh, fairly good, I would think. Um, one, one one issue that I did run across is that I ke- uh, kept having to stir the hops back into the water, the plain water, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the uh, the hops integrated fairly well. Uh, into the rolling mm-hmm. boil of the mm-hmm. the one yeah. with the wort. Mm, interesting. Yeah. No. No. I mean, it may it may affect. It may be that some malt w- would in- enhance the solubility overall. But uh, yeah, interesting case. Uh, did you uh, notice the the color of the uh, the water only uh, after uh, it had boiled been boiled for a while when before you put the malt in? Yeah. The the. You mean the color of the of the of the of water, the water with yeah. with the uh, well, it was in a in a blue enamel pot, so oh, it was okay. kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but we did notice that the extract that had gone through the full boil was a couple of shades darker. Uh, you right. know, it makes just just makes sense, but uh, <clears throat> you know that's that's one one uh, of the the arguments for this style of extract brewing. You know that I've heard is that you get better. Hop utilization and you get a, a less of a darkening color over right. time. Sure, that, well, so that, that, that that makes sense. Yeah, that that seemed to to prove itself out. Yeah, well, the the other the point the point I was going to make is that that hops do contribute color to the wort as well, 
And if you, you take some hops and, and boil them in, in, in plain water uh, for an hour, an hour and a half, um, and you let it cool and separate them, you'll fa- find the water is actually uh, fairly reddish in, in really? color. Yeah. Huh. Uh, so there, there is a, uh, a water or a, um, a color pickup from, from the hops themselves. I wouldn't have predicted red. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> there you go. Uh, is, there, is there a limit to the amount of bitterness that you can get in a volume of uh, wort. Oh, sure. Sure, absolutely. What's the speed limit? What's the... <laughs> well, it's like the speed of you know, light. I don't, you know? I, don't, I don't think we have a definitive uh, answer to that question, uh, but there are certain, certainly... I, I don't think I've... I'm, I've heard of things that are in um, the very high double digits, maybe very low uh, triple digits, you know, uh, 90s to, to 110s uh, kind of range. And people will sort of say, oh, this has got, you know, 200 IBUs in it because that's their calculated uh, IBUs. But in terms of an actually tested, verified uh, concentration, uh, it seems to be somewhere in, in that range. Um, you know, again, it's, it's, uh, there's a solubility issue there. And at some point, um, any compound reaches a limit of solubility in, in, in a liquid, and, and you just can't put any more in there, and you, you add more in, and some, some of it that's there just precipitates out and, and is no longer present in the finished solution. And, I mean, that, that gets us back to, you know, the, the whole issue of, of what you do in the boil is not the end of the game either. Um, you know, different yeasts um, have different effects on... Um, uh, perceived uh, bitterness. Uh, some of them actually uh, may absorb and, and remove some bittering compounds from uh, the beer during fermentation. Um, but, you know, it's a minor effect, but an effect nonetheless. Um, the way that uh, your croissant, uh is treated during fermentation has a, has an effect because there, there are bittering compounds in the fro- uh, in the croissant, and if that croissant is either uh, removed by blow off. Or uh, adheres to the top of your fermentation vessel, which would be more common in, in commercial breweries than home breweries. But there's some cases where that can happen at home brewing as well, as opposed to just falling back into uh, the beer after after fermentation. Um, you know, then your your anything that that causes croissant to be removed or part of the croissant removed is removing some bitter compounds, bitter compounds from from the finished beer. I think there was actually a a, a beer brand or a beer uh, brewer that uh, advertised croisoning uh, a few years ago. I can't remember who it was. Yeah, well, and, that, and that's a different process uh, in and of itself. Um, that's, that's where you add fermented beer back to the already fermented beer ah. um, in order to uh, carbonate it uh, at the time of packaging. And I would imagine carbonation would also have a, an impact on the perception of bitterness as well. Um, yeah, uh, more with, with really light beers. Um, you know, the American, uh, light lager, the, uh, the classic, uh, flavor attribute is carbon dioxide bite. Um, that's, that's the, the thing that is most, uh, most impresses most drinkers upon first tasting, uh, the American mass market beers. <laughs> um, and, and it certainly has an impact on, on your perception of dryness and, and bitterness in the beer. Um, but there, there are other factors like, um, you know, if you do filtration uh, of your beer, uh, certainly um, that's, again, a common commercial practice, and even some home brewers do some of it. Uh, if you do any sort of fining uh, of the beer, uh, all those things can, can uh, cause some precipitation of uh, bittering compounds and, and change the, 
the bitterness levels in the finished beers. Uh, so that's all, all stuff to, um, you know, sort of be aware of, and uh, you can't necessarily quantitate it uh, as you go along, but if you see some, some quirky results in your brewing, uh, those are things that you might want to think about, uh, whether they may have had, a, had an influence in, in this particular case. So we've kind of talked about the, have we covered most of the big factors uh, that, that uh control bitterness or affect bitterness in, in beer? Yeah, I think for, for home brewers, about the only the one that's, that's worth considering is um, boil vigor, um, which, which is influenced really on two counts. One is altitude. If you're, you're brewing at altitude, my buddy's out in, in Colorado, um, you know, you get up to a mile high and higher and you start having uh, reduced uh, boiling uh, temperature, and that's going to reduce your rate of isomerization because it's it's the reaction is is heat driven, and you're you're ultimately at a, a lower temperature. Um, the other is uh, what you're using to conduct your boil. Um, you know, like like probably everybody, I started out uh, boiling a few gallons on on stove top, and uh, you got uh, something that was somewhat more resembled a simmer rather than a, mm. a, a rolling boil. Yeah. And uh, I went through several uh, iterations of, of boiling vessels um, and finally wound up with the, um, uh, the Cajun cooker, you know, 250,000 BTUs or whatever <laughs> it is. Uh, you know, and you put a, put a pot with five gallons in it on that, that sucker and fire it up, and it's at a rolling boil in about ten minutes. And uh, that uh, obviously is going to give you a more a more vigorous agitation, physical agitation uh, of the wort. You know, um, uh, temperature uh, boiling, the temperature of boiling is limited to you know whatever the boil temperature is at your altitude, 212 for for most of us, anywhere close to sea level. Um, but the vigor of that boil uh, definitely will uh, impact utilization and, and how fast uh, the the hop, uh, the alpha acids present in your wort are going to work down that, that uh, utilization curve and, and get converted into their isomerized form. Now, the, here's the, the question that everybody's been waiting for out there, I think. And what, How do you calculate I, IBUs, taking into account all those factors? Take us through the process. I know you don't have a chalkboard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. I may, I may have to get out a pencil and paper for myself. And maybe maybe we should do that uh, listening as well so that we can kind of, uh, you know, write, write along with Ray. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, ultimately it gets back to uh, milligrams uh, per liter. And uh, the milligrams that we're, we're looking for on the top of the equation is uh, milligrams of uh, isomerized alpha acids. And the liters that we're looking at on the, on the bottom of the equation are liters of finished beer. Uh, not how many liters are, are in your boil, but how many liters of uh, finished beer you're actually going to have. And um, so when we, uh, we focus on those two things, uh, milligrams of alpha acid on the top, uh, we start with uh, the alpha acid percent uh, by weight uh, in the hops that you're adding. Uh, times the weight of the hops uh, themselves, um, and that's going to tell us uh, how many uh, milligrams of, of alpha acid we've got. And then you've got a utilization factor. Um, so the first first two tells us how much alpha acid we're adding to the to the word in an unisomerized form, and then we've got to multiply that by a utilization uh, factor that tells us uh, how much. 
uh, of the uh, non-isomerized alpha acids will become isomerized and survive into the finished beer. And and you do that nicely in your book by giving a, a table, um, you know, that I've got dog-eared. Uh, you know, one for uh, pellets, one for whole hops, and then you look, you know, on the left-hand side to see how long you're boiling those particular hops. And that's another thing that we didn't talk about specifically, but, you know, bittering hops, you know, we say boil for 60 minutes, but those hops that you boil for, say, 15 minutes for aroma and maybe, you know, 10 minutes or 5 minutes for flavor, those also will add to your IBU number, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, and it's kind of interesting. Um, one, of the, one of the great, um, you know, sort of eye-openers of, of uh, uh, going to Siebel Brewing School where you've got uh, instructors from uh, some of the, the big uh, names, big breweries in, in America was to listen to you know the their um, uh, sort of recipe formulation expert uh, about how they do these things, and they basically assume one utilization factor for all the hop additions, regardless of when they occur during the process. Wow! And I was like, but but you know the curve, <laughs> there's different utilizations. Says, ah, we don't care about that stuff. <laughs> you know, we're 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 trying to get it in the ballpark. Once we brew it the first time, we'll send it to the lab. We'll see, you know, we'll get a, we'll get a IBUs run on it, and we'll adjust it from there. That's not my department, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, but you know, when you got a, when you got a lab to tell you exactly where it is, and you know, when you're brewing uh, hundreds of batches uh, uh, a week, and you can blend those together to adjust for being slightly off on one batch or another to hit your final spec. You know, it's it's far less uh, critical of an issue in terms of uh, measuring it going in. And then, if you have a large marketing department to market your beer, no matter what it tastes like, really, it <laughs> <laughs> that kind of takes the edge off as well. I would well, say. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, get the you in bo- trouble. That, that gets us to the the, the top of our equation. <laughs> I'm getting Ray in trouble. Which is uh, milligrams of uh, of isomerized alpha acid, and then on the bottom we want uh, liters of of finished beer. And the other thing that you'll uh, we'll see down there, and that I I put in the book and use is that correction factor for high gravity words. And without looking at the book, I couldn't tell you. I think it's it's um, your your starting gravity minus uh, 1050 times 0.02 or something, or maybe it's 0.002. Yeah, I meant to bring the book into the studio, but I forgot it. <laughs> There's a correction factor there. So if you if you're doing a high gravity boil. Or, you, or you're making a high-gravity beer, uh, um, you need to uh, factor that correction factor in there. And basically what that does is just, just indexes up uh, your volume uh, to make it, a, you know, make it appear that you, you're, you're making more beer than you are uh, so that you'll add more milligrams uh, to uh, get the desired bitterness uh, because, as I said, the, the um, solubility uh, decreases as your, your gravity goes up and you'll need to uh, make more isomerized alpha acids available in order to achieve the, the level that you'd, you'd like in that beer. So it's the alpha acid percent times the weight times the utilization number, and then there's a constant uh, number that you use on top, you know, above the line. Yeah, depending upon what units you're doing this all in. Whether it's um, I mean, Eng- I, English I've taught, or... I've taught this to home brewers using, you know, ounces and, and gallons, uh, in, in, in metric, in you know U.S. units, I've taught it to professional brewers using pounds and barrels uh, in, in U.S. units, and I've taught it to uh, international brewers using uh, grams and hectoliters uh, 
mm. in international units. And so that, that, that adjustment factor uh, just depends upon what units you're using, and, and it brings everything uh, back to uh, milligrams per liter, our, our desired uh, finished uh, units. And then on the bottom we have the volume, and then if it's above 1050 uh, in specific gravity, then you have the correction right. factor. Right, exactly. So it's that's it. <laughs> yep, that's that's the that's the the tried and true, the, the straightforward uh, uh, IBU calculation formula, and uh, it uh, it stands stands uh, most of us in good stead on a on a year in year out, year out mm-hmm. basis. And then in the book, you also turn it around to help people figure out how much hops that they're they're going to need to get reach a specific. Uh, uh, target uh, uh, IBU level. Right, well. right, and and if, if you'll recall the the sequence that I that I recommend there is that you decide um, on uh, what what uh, aroma and flavor hops you want to add um, because those uh, quantities are driven by uh, the desired aroma and flavor uh, properties rather than than by any bittering considerations. So figure out your aroma and flavoring additions. Uh, work out uh, how many IBUs those are going to contribute. Then go to your target total IBUs for the beer, uh, subtract what you've already accomplished with your aroma and flavor additions, and that tells you uh, how many more IBUs you need to add as, as bittering hops to reach your target. Uh, then you can use that calculation that says, okay, I need this many IBUs, and I have a hop of, of this alpha acid content. Uh, what weight do I need to add to, uh, to reach my goal? And you and you explain it rather rather nicely. It's not it's not a book for someone who's never brewed before, but nope. one, once you've got your process down and you know kind of what you're doing, then get designing great beers and you can design your own recipes with uh, with a lot more confidence. That is the general idea. <laughs> if you if you're if you've never brewed before and you read it, it's going to scare the hell out of you. But. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, hopefully it'll send you back to a little simpler book like uh, John Palmer's How to Brew and kind of get your feet under you and figure out what's going on before you come back and start doing some of this stuff. There you go. Well, uh, 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 is there anything else that you want to add? It's a a big topic and a lot to cover in just a few minutes, but uh, I think think we've done a pretty good job. Is there anything else? Um, No, I think, uh, you know, as always, you know, let let taste be your, be your, the final arbiter. And, uh, you know, if the calculations say you're, um, you're getting 30, but it only tastes like 20 to you, then, you know, Pump it up, put a little more, put a little more in there. Um, <laughs> That's a beauty and, and, you of know, I, I'd say that you know the one sort of debate we get into every now and then is um, the curve that 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 gets used in various sources is somewhat different um, based upon the assumptions that go into it. And I remember when I was doing my uh, doing the research for designing great beers, I was looking at various uh, authors and sources that were out there. Uh, and my my friend Randy Mosier was was one of those sources. He's got uh, Dr. Bob Technical's uh, Hop Go Round, his little uh, circular uh, slide rule calculator for doing this on the fly. Which which when I'm being down and dirty and just doing something sloppy is exactly not sloppy, but you know <laughs> just trying to do it quick is what I use. You know if I'm just trying to whip up a, a quick batch of pale ale for fun to drink at home, uh, I'll just grab Bob, Dr. Dr. Bob Technical's uh, uh, Hop Go Round and and do it real quick on the back of the envelope and run in there and throw it in the beer. Um, 
but when I was I was checking everything out, Randy uh, has also got his his book, uh, The Brewer's Companion, uh, which came out back in the early '90s. And uh, I was looking at both of the curves and, and utilizations on both of those and found out that uh, he had, in fact, used two different sets of curves in the, in the two different places. And I called him up and I said, okay, which one is it? And he was kind of stuck for an answer at the time. And I think, I think my curve is actually a uh, kind of a compromise between those two and based upon, you know, my experience. Um, so you know nothing. Nothing is absolute, and and uh, the the one way you can sort of ground all this at some point is to uh, brew a beer uh, with a very uh, under very careful circumstances that you add exactly an ounce for exactly an hour, and they're you know freshly um, procured hops that you you know have a pretty good chance that the alpha acid marked on the envelope is really what they are. And uh, once you finish brewing that beer, you send it to a lab and get an IBU analysis done, uh, which uh, I think is a you know twenty-five to fifty-dollar uh, mm. kind of thing. Uh, expensive, but if you really want to know whether whether you're you know touching reality or whether you're just messing around in, in the ether, there uh, can be a useful thing to know. And, and once you've kind of got that um, uh, that stake in the sand, that okay, I thought I uh, I thought I was getting forty, and I only got thirty-five. Um, you know, you can adjust that a little bit and, and get you uh, maybe closer to your goal on a regular basis. Or you can just relax and have a homebrew. Exactly. <laughs> just, just have a good time and enjoy it. And, you know, I, um, I'm trying, I guess I did at one time have IBUs done on, on something, but um, I, I think it was past my sort of competitive prime as, as a homebrewer, and uh, so I never really used that information very much. Uh, I certainly did an awful lot of years of of competitive brewing without um, without benefit of of knowing the the connection between laboratory IBUs and and taste IBUs and uh, you know the palate is a wonderful thing it gives you pretty good guidance. Yeah, I I go by if I like it I think it's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ray, I appreciate your taking time to uh, talk with us. Ray Daniels, author of uh, Designing Great Beers. Glad to do it. Well, thanks again to Ray Daniels, and if you want to purchase Ray's Designing Great Beers book and to support this podcast at the same time, click on the Amazon.com link on the right side of the page on BasicBrewingRadio.com. One thing I want to clarify, in the interview, uh, I made a mistake. I said aroma hops are added 15 minutes before the end of the boil and flavor hops are added closer to the end of the boil, and it should have been the other way around. The, the compounds responsible for aroma are more volatile than those associated with hop flavor. And I you know, I guess I just caught, caught up in the moment with uh, talking with Ray there. I thought that was a great interview, and I hope to get uh, Ray back uh, with us again to talk uh, about more aspects of that uh, Designing Great Beers book. You know, not just for the promotional considerations, because I don't get a lot of money from, you know, the clicks on the Amazon.com thing. Uh, I just think it's a great book, and it helps – it's helped me a lot. So if you don't buy it from me or Amazon on my behalf, that's fine. If, uh, you know, you want to support your local homebrew store instead or, you know, you find it in the library, you want to read it uh, or you want to borrow it from a friend, that's fine. You know, I just it, – it, it's helped me out. So uh, that's that's the reason why I keep harping on it. I'm still working on next week's show. I don't know, I don't know what it's going to be yet. I'm in the process of arranging an interview with John Palmer on lagering. 
And I'm hoping to get uh, with Steve Wilkes and do another video podcast since the first one was so fun. So tune in next week for a surprise for all of us, I guess, <laughs> basically. Um, if you have brewing questions in the meantime, show suggestions, or just want to say hey, write to james at basicbrewing.com or just fill out the contact form on basicbrewing.com. Don't forget to tell us where you're from. And if you're wanting to get into home brewing for the first time while you're on our site, you can check out our DVD, uh, Basic Brewing Introduction to Extract Home Brewing. We'll walk you through the process step by step, and you can see you're listening in the fine folks across the country who sell our DVD uh, on our site. And if there isn't a vendor in your area, you can order it online. Well, that's all until next week. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm James Spencer, production help for Basic Brewing Radio and our website, is provided, as always, by Kelly Dodson. Basic Brewing Radio is a production of Active Voicing. We'll talk to you next time. So long.